Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. It's time to wrap up the summer of sport with the games, but how do we make sure that they're fair? Cheating has been around in sport since the dawn of time, but how do we make sure that people using performance-enhancing drugs are identified and caught before ruining the concepts of the very games in question. We talk about the science behind anti-doping agencies' search to stop cheating in sport. The spectacle of athletes from across the world, from very different countries, ways of life, backgrounds, all gathering together to compete for pride and glory at the games is something that draws millions and millions Actually, some could argue billions of viewers from across the world, all watching in one. And the success through medals or just incredible performances that may or may not lead to, to a win will inspire generations to come. But that very legacy can be called into question when the validity of those results are doubted. Now, there's been a lot of scandal going into this season of festivities and sporting events about the use of doping. And scandals about doping have racked sporting events from everything from the Ultimate Fighting Championship, tennis, cycling, through to athletics and a number of other sports. And it's called us to question the very basis on which a lot of these sports are based around. And that is, are we seeing actual real human behavior? Or are some of those victories due to performance-enhancing drugs? So just what is being done to keep a lid on those performance-enhancing drugs, and make sure that what we see at things such as the games are simply fair contests between rivals, and not one where someone has a little bit of an edge. So this week, we're going to be looking at the science behind anti-doping, and how you actually pick up the various different mechanisms of performance enhancement, and what exactly that means for the sport you watch, the athletes involved, and the scientists working hard to make sure that the sport stays fair for all. So since the very first sporting event, there's always been perhaps some who would take all steps necessary to guarantee success. Maybe do things that skirt the rules or cheat. And in sport, governing bodies, it's always been a constant struggle to identify those that are cheating and making sure that they can't get away with it. Since 1999, the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA, has been keeping an eye on sport to make sure that it stays fair and true. And they've been doing that through a number of scientific tests, procedures, and processes. But they are stuck in a never-ending arm race with those who would wish to cheat and skirt the rules. Now, WADA, though it's funded by the International Olympic Committee, does actually have funding from governments, as well as a variety of other sports and federations, who all use the resources of WADA, their testing policies, and their code to make sure that their sport is clean. And yes, they have a big role to do with many things such as the Olympic Games. They are also very deeply involved with policing, to an extent, other major events such as tennis or maybe the Tour de France or even down to the level of Australian rules football 
if you may remember the conflict between WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, ASADA, the Australian uh, Sports and Anti-Doping Agency, and also the Essendon Football Club in Australian Rules Football, who were in a bit of a stoush around the use of performance-enhancing drugs for their players. Now, WADA serves a great purpose, but they are really in a struggle because they have to try and keep things above board. And the challenge is that what they're going up against is some of the cleverest minds in cheating science. So what WADA does to set out the scene for you is they maintain a list. And this list effectively lists all the prohibitive substances. Then, in 34 accredited labs across the world, they can test for those banned substances. And if you are found to have any of those in your system, then you are deemed to be in violation of the World Anti-Doping Code, and the ramifications depend particularly on the sport that you're playing. But effectively, they're there to act as the referee. And they do so for about 600 different sporting organisations and federations across the world. But this list of banned substances is very tricky to maintain, but also one that you have to keep a close eye on. As Maria Sharapova, a tennis player from Russia, found out just this year, when she was banned basically for two years by the International Tennis Federation, which at her age means effectively a life ban, uh, for taking a drug for performance-enhancing regions. And it been, and she'd been taking it for 10 or so years, but it only made its way onto the banned list at the start of this year. It is the responsibility of all athletes to make sure that they're not taking any substances that are on the banned list. Otherwise, they will obviously face the ban, even if it's been something that you've been doing for a very long time. And if you look at the drug in question, meldonium, in the case of Sharapova, it's been known to actually have a significant boost in basically in the recovery rate of people who take this drug, uh, from, especially from aerobic exercise. And look, that's not great, uh, but it's actually not designed for that purpose at all. It's an anti-diabetes drug by nature, but people have been taking it for the last 10 or so years because it really boosts your recovery performance and helps you have uh, more significant stamina. And that's why it was added to the doping list. But to add a drug to the doping list, first you have to test it, make sure and figure out if anyone is actually potentially using it for performance enhancement, and then you can actually start to look for it as well. So even though it may seem like a, a very quick in sudden ban, it's actually been something that's been on the cards for quite some time because the testing agencies are always lagging behind because they don't know what they should be looking for and it's not like you can ask the cheaters to tell you. So going back to the 1980s or so, when we started to actually test for growth hormones and steroid use, mostly that was done through urine tests, which means getting a urine sample from the athlete just after they've performed. That's a bit of a challenge because athletes were then taking all kinds of fluids to basically flush out the system, to hide the traces, to mask it, and to mean that effectively uh, the, the performance-enhancing drugs were hidden. And that was relatively straightforward. Then the test started getting a bit more sophisticated and advanced. So people would then take uh, urine and basically substitute a clean sample of urine with the one that's actually doped. For example, uh, women would uh, insert condoms filled with someone else's urine inside them and use that. Others would inject clean urine into their bladders using catheters. And more miraculously and weirdly, a prosthetic penis was used by several people, including a former NFL player, Ontario Smith, uh, who was caught with a prosthetic penis that could urinate 
and stored sample of urine, uh, clean urine, to avoid a test. And even Mike Tyson, the boxer, admitted to having used such a device called a whizinator um, to do that, to get around the rules. So urine testing is, is just one way that we, we started with. But now we're going on to a whole bunch of other measures as well, including both urine and blood and a number of other samples. And one of the reasons we moved away from urine as a sample test, because sometimes, uh, as, as, as a 2009 Bloomberg investigation reported, that athletes were taking EPO, um, which is basically a naturally occurring protein that increases the red blood cells in your body and it really effectively super boosts your performance. So EPO is a common uh, performance-enhancing drug. And the way you hide EPO, or used to, was that you get a, a drug involved, uh, a chemical involved that would break down the enzymes that are inside EPO and thus hide it, make it harder to detect. And there's there's basically something called protease, which is found in some soaps that would do that. So athletes would actually cover their hands in soap and then urinate over their hands covered in this soap, um, which would then break down the EPO in their urine sample and give them a clean sample. And that just goes to show you the level at which that chemistry and science is trying to keep up with actually the ingenuity of performance-enhancing drug users. And after that, there's that's not even touching on the whole range of areas of blood doping, which basically it's the process of increasing the amount of oxygen in the bloodstream to really boost and enhance athletic performance. And this has also a decades-long uh, history in athletics, but also cycling, most notably Lance Armstrong was the highest profile user who's been caught of performance-enhancing blood doping. But from his and other key people involved's statements, we found out that that was a widespread process with people basically having full blood transfusions in trucks to get around the testing that was done to them to dodge the anti-doping agencies. So now you have to take urine samples and blood samples and it's all starting to get a bit tricky because what is normal what is abnormal what is this the faint trace that you're looking for and to counter that what was then created in 2009 was the biological passport a series of tests and readings and a variety of samples to basically fingerprint and identify what makes an athlete's individual samples across a number of different methods. And then you can track this over time. You can track this uh, and, and measure against it uh, throughout their entire career, before meets, after meets, during training periods, and even come back and visit these samples later on. And this has been adopted by a number of growing fields, including track and field athletes, tennis players, and now even FINA, the Swimming Association. So what are scientists doing to sort of track and help pick up these unusual and cheating behaviors? Well, for on the instrumentation that's being used has improved. Now, about 10 years ago, a laboratory was able to detect about a nanogram per millimeter amount of substances. Now they can go down to the picogram, three orders of magnitude lower than before. And that's really useful, just detecting those finest traces that may be left in a system. But you also need to pick up new and novel methods of testing as well, as well as keeping tabs on what is actually being done in the market. Till about mid-2000s, most of the science in anti-doping testing had relied on basic toxicological testing. They used screening techniques to detect specific drug, drugs 
and see if they had been used to enhance performance. The problem was that a lot of drugs were sneaking under the radar of this testing regime, things like EPO, which they were capable of boosting performance in endurance sports several weeks after the actual administration, even though the drug itself only remained 48 hours. Which, if you think about it the way of traditional way of testing, that completely changes the methodology. So how do you pick that up? Well, that's where they started looking for, not in just the drug itself, but any changes or things that may have caused in the fingerprint, the signature of the, of the samples in the blood and other areas, to try and identify, ah, okay, we can't see that they've actually taken, say, EPO, but we can see the trace, the impact that EPO has left behind. And that's where the athlete biological passport sort of comes into play. They have something to test against to sort of take up their baseline. So what they are actually looking for is the changes induced in the body rather than the actual drug itself. And, for example, in London 2012 Olympics was the first time they actually started tracing growth hormone biomarkers and monitoring those performance as well. And they looked at two specific biomarkers, the IGF and P3MP biomarkers, which are part of basically the body's response and hormone response, and they traced them to see if there was any impact. Some researchers now are looking towards certain metabolites, things that are produced by types of banned drugs. And this, this might help, for example, stanozole, um, which is a long-term metabolite, which is found when you use steroids. It means that you can look uh, and identify steroids long after they've been used, from hours before and after to weeks. Now, unfortunately, the people creating and using these performance-enhancing drugs often have some clever scientists working for them as well. And to get around this, uh, this athlete biological passport concept, they've started to do what's called as microdosing, taking very small doses of certain drugs, such as EPO, that sort of get around the blood testing methods used by the APB. And that's just one area where performance-enhancing drugs have started to skirt and change the, the makeup. But another area of pretty much incredible development is the use of gene doping. And at the Rio Olympic Games, they will be testing for gene doping, which was first done uh, with samples from Beijing in 2008 and London in 2012. So, so when we say gene doping, what we're actually referring to is looking for performance-enhancing gene therapy. And th basically, an athlete is given synthetic DNA that has a job, has a code inside of that promotes a certain etheroprotein, EPO, a hormone that increases red blood cell production and basically boosts performance. So instead of trying to directly inject EPO, increase EPO levels, they're actually giving you a gene that will actually produce that EPO for you. So to make it even more natural, so to remove any traces of perhaps injection to it. So it's actually thought that this kind of testing as well combined with retroactive testing and looking for these markers can actually really help boost the detection of drugs genes. For example, at the time when Beijing 2008 occurred, they, they had a pretty low level of, of cheating identified, about 1%. But with improvements in science that were undertaken since then, a lot of those samples were actually retested and, re, and resampled in 2016. 
So out of you know the 5,000 samples tested for both Beijing and London, which sat at 1% and, and about 8%, when they were both retested in 2016, they pretty much found that Beijing had about 8% level of drug use, or performance-enhancing drug use, and London had about 9.5, which is quite interesting, which is one of the reasons why we've suddenly picked up. It's not so much that drug cheating has suddenly increased, it's more now that the science to capture it has improved. So we're now closing more and more of the doorways that people are sneaking in. Take, for example, the recent Russian doping scandal where basically the Russian Association of Anti-Doping's own testing lab was permanently shut down. Uh, the Russian International Athletic Federation was banned from competing at Rio Games, so there's been some compromise there. And pretty much we've heard from officials inside these institutes that there was a systematic operation to cover up the positive drug testing from the 2014 Sochi Games. And primarily... They were using a combination of three anabolic steroids. Obviously, testosterone is, is the primary one, but then there's a the Duchess, a cocktail of three others, oral turbinal, oxydrolinone, and methosterone. And basically, the these steroids were mixed in alcohol, so they dissolved more quickly, and then the athloids basically swished it in their mouths and then spat it out. And so it just absorbed through the cheek, the uh, cheek lining, and it really reduced the length of time that they were detectable for, basically only down to three to five days, which made it really, really tough for them to pick up. As well, there was about hot swapping of samples, which is more about systemic rather than scientific cheating. So will the Olympic Games ever be clean? Well, they'll be as clean as any other sport is, and it really depends on the science at its core to help monitor, track, and keep monitoring and retesting from now and into the future through things such as the biological passport to help pick up any new and subtle methods. And when we become aware of a new method, such as gene doping, we can go back and test the results to see that if there were any changes that need to be made. And in the end, cheaters never prosper. Because even if you cheated at the time, chances are the tests will catch up. And when the testing mechanisms catch up, they can test back against your old samples, fingerprinted against your biological sample, and the medal results, for example, will be overturned. So the winners, the true and rightful winners, will win out in the end. Until then, it's a never-ending battle between the scientific forces of fairness and those who are willing to skirt the law. And they're locked in a never-ending arms race. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out about how scientists are keeping our sports clean with everything from revised testings, monitoring from EPO, and even searching for gene therapy to help keep our sports safe and fair. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.